Section 12 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. Archaeology as Searchlight, Part 3. This is perhaps the place to refer to another important service which archaeology has rendered, that is, in placing a check on the too easy practice of resolving historical facts into myths. Few things are more remarkable in the later progress of discovery than the way in which historical persons and events, till lately relegated to the realm of myth, have had their rights restored to them as indubitably real. The two first dynasties of Egypt were generally supposed to be mythical. Menes, the founder of the first dynasty, was quite surely so regarded, and writers like Maspero wrote learnedly to show how the myth originated. Now the tombs of these kings have been discovered, and the dynasties are restored to their real place in history. It has been the same elsewhere. Quote, the spade of Dr. Schliemann and his followers has again brought to light the buried empire of Agamemnon. Unquote. King Minos of Crete was universally regarded as a myth. Now, as the result of the excavations of Dr. Evans, his palace has been disinterred, and travelers boast of having sat in his throne. Assyrian inscriptions have established the historical existence of King Midas of Phrygia, 8th century B.C., still described in textbooks as an ancient divinity of the northern Greeks and Phrygians. Quote, a blessing-scattering nature god, unquote. Possibly some surprises are yet in store for those to whom the patriarchs, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, etc., are only products of the myth-forming fancy. Even as it is, I would observe next, not a little illustrative and confirmatory light has been cast by exploration on the historical relations and conditions of life of the patriarchal age. I have mentioned already the remarkable code of the great ruler Hammurabi, which presents interesting analogies to the laws of Moses, and has also curious points of relation with patriarchal customs in the book of Genesis. For instance, the law takes account of precisely such relations as existed in Abraham's household between Sarah and Hagar, and directs what should be done should the woman afterwards have a dispute with her mistress because she has borne children. Here is a touch of verisimilitude such as after invention could not have supplied. In the historical sphere, the most crucial example is that of Kedarlaomer, 
The story of Kirilaomer's expedition into Palestine in Genesis 14 takes us back at least till about 2100 B.C. It moves in strange surroundings and relates unusual events. It gives the names of a number of kings otherwise unknown to history. These stand in intricate relations to one another. It assumes that Babylonia was at this time under the suzerainty of a king of Elam. Who, writing at a later time, could possibly pick his steps in such a story without falling into error? Yet what does discovery establish? That precisely as the chapter relates, Babylonia was at this time under the rule of an Elamitic dynasty. That a common, if not universal, prefix in the names of these rulers was Kudr, servant that their power extended over Palestine, that the name Kidderleomer, Kudur-Lagamar, servant of Lagamar, is a genuine Elamitic compound, that contemporary kings were Iraiku of Larsa, Ariok, Amraphel, Hammurabi, Tudgulu. Certain archaeologists, Sethi, Homo, Pinkis, even claim that the name Kederleomer itself has been deciphered. Here is a clear corroboration of the framework of the story. It is difficult to understand how such facts should come to be known unless old and practically contemporary records were available. In such a detailed history as that of Joseph, we have another form of corroboration, hardly less remarkable. The scene of the greater part of Joseph's life is laid in Egypt. It is always difficult to describe with accuracy the conditions of life, customs, domestic and social arrangements, political circumstances of a foreign country. To picture its life in public and private, in courts and in humbler ranks, in slave market, prison, and household, with ease, naturalness, and fidelity of coloring. Yet this is what has been accomplished in the history of Joseph. Egyptian life, manners, customs, relations of men and women, masters and servants, king and subjects, are by general consent pictured to perfection especially in those features of the description to which exception at an earlier age was taken, as, for example, the use of flesh meat at feasts, the free manners of the women, the use of wine, etc. The monuments have abundantly vindicated the picture given. The same thing is true of the Egyptian coloring in the narratives of the Exodus, so vivid and fresco-like, yet so true to reality. How is this careful accuracy of the narratives to be explained, except on the hypothesis that the story was early reduced to writing by one familiar with the country and the events of which he writes? Part 4 
This brings me next to say a few words on the illustration which exploration has afforded of the Mosaic period. One remarkable discovery which cannot be overlooked was the finding of the actual mummies of all the great pharaohs of the 18th and 19th dynasties. As it is certain that it was under one or other of these dynasties that the oppression of Israel and the Exodus took place, we can feel sure that the mummy of the veritable pharaoh on whose face Moses looked the pharaoh under whose oppression Israel groaned, is now in our possession. But who was it? The usual theory is that the pharaoh of the oppression was the great ruler Ramesses II, and the pharaoh of the Exodus probably his son Meneptah. There is much in itself to be said for this identification. The conditions in many ways suit and corroboration is found in the two cities, Ramesses and Pithom, which Pharaoh is said to have caused the Israelites to build, Exodus 1, 2. Ramesses is apparently the name of the king, and discovery shows that Ramesses II was connected with the building or rebuilding of both cities. The matter, however, has been complicated by the more recent discovery of a monument of Meneptah, on which the name of Israel is for the first time distinctly found. On this stella Meneptah boastfully records his victories over several peoples in and about Palestine, and apparently includes Israel among these. Quote, Israel is spoiled, it reads. It hath no seed. Unquote. On the assumption that Meneptah is the pharaoh of the Exodus, this must be understood to mean that Israel, lost to view in the wanderings of the desert, was regarded as cut off, destroyed, so that no successors were left. But the more natural view is that Israel, in Meneptah's reign, was already in Palestine. In this case, of course, Meneptah could not be the pharaoh of the Exodus. There is, however, another fact that speaks strongly against this identification. That is, the chronology. It is certain, in view of the Kidoleomer synchronism, that Abraham's date cannot be put later than about 2100 B.C. This leaves fully 850 years between Abraham and the Exodus under Meneptah, after 1250 B.C., which is a couple of centuries more than the biblical data will allow. On the other side, the period between the Exodus and the founding of the temple circa 975 B.C., is much too short. Reference 1 Kings 6, verse 1. We seem driven by superior probability, therefore, to put back the Exodus into the previous 18th dynasty, where the dates absolutely suit. 
circa 1450, where also the conditions are equally favorable, if not more so. The oppressor on this view, which many now adopt, will be the great monarch Totmus III, and the pharaoh of the Exodus will be one of his immediate successors, Amenophis II, or Totmus IV. The store cities, in this case, were built under Totmus, and perhaps rebuilt or enlarged by Ramesses. Fifty or sixty years later we have the great eruption of the Kabiri into Palestine, described in the Tel el Amarna letters. Many scholars who adopt the earlier date are disposed to identify this eruption with the Hebrew invasion. As was naturally to be expected, much attention has been bestowed by explorers on the route of the Exodus, and on the topography of the desert in which Israel so long wandered. It is the barest truth to say that the remarkable accuracy of the biblical accounts on these matters has been endorsed by every investigator of importance. Most of the spots in the route have been identified. The descriptions of the utter barrenness and desolation of the desert are confirmed to the letter. See Palmer, Brugge, Petri, etc. The difficulty that arises is as to the means of obtaining sustenance in such a place, for so large a host as the Israelites are represented to have been. Professor Petri, as noted above, will have it that the desert was as infertile then as it is today, and could not support more than some five thousand souls. Others, as Palmer, believe that in many parts vegetation and wood were originally much more abundant. In any case, the reader of the Bible recalls that the narrative itself emphasizes the frequent dire straits of the people in their journeyings from want of water, famine, absence of flesh food and vegetables, etc., and makes this the very ground of a series of divine interpositions which relieved their immediate needs and provided them in the manna with a daily sustenance. The one thing we can be sure of is that God did not bring his people into the desert without securing that they would be provided with what things were necessary for their subsistence. Part 5 When we come down to the period of the kings, the notices on the monuments of the relations between Israel and surrounding peoples become more numerous and often read like extracts from the Bible pages themselves. The names and doings of the kings and events narrated in Scripture, like Shishak's invasion, Misha's rebellion, the fall of Samaria and captivity of Israel, Sennacherib's invasion, are inscribed in the contemporary records of the peoples or rulers concerned. Sometimes additional information is imparted. 
we learn that Shishak's invasion extended to the cities of Israel and Judah. See Second Chronicles 12, verse 3 and 4, which enlarges the account of First Kings 13, verses 25-26. That Jehu paid tribute to Shalmaneser II, king of Assyria, that Ahab fought as an ally of Ben-Hadad at the battle of Karkar in the end of his life. See First Kings 20, verse 34, 22, verse 1. That Sargon was the conqueror of Samaria, etc. One special service which Assyrian discovery has done is in rectifying the chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah as given in the margins of our Bible. The Assyrians had a very exact system of reckoning, based on the succession of yearly officers and their lists. The so-called eponym canon are confirmed by independent monuments, eclipses, etc. The points of contact with the biblical history are not few and reveal a growing discrepancy upwards from the fall of Samaria, 722 B.C., where the dates coincide, till in the reign of Ahab it amounts to over forty years, after which it does not increase much. For example, the usual date for Ahab's death is 898 B.C., whereas the inscriptions show him present, probably in his last year, at the Battle of Karkar in 854 B.C. The founding of the Temple of Solomon, placed about 1012 B.C., has to be correspondingly lowered. How is this to be explained? An examination of the biblical numbers themselves suggests the reasons of the discrepancy. In summing up the total years of the reigns of the kings of Judah on the one side, and those of the kings of Israel on the other till the fall of Samaria, we find that the Judean line is some twenty years longer than the northern one. To harmonize this difference, the ordinary chronology inserts two interregnums, one of eleven years after the death of Jeroboam II, and one of nine years after the death of Pekah, of which the biblical history affords no hints. It is now generally allowed that the real explanation of this inequality lies in associations of certain of the kings, as of Jotham with his father Uzziah, see Second Chronicles 26, verse 21, and possibly of Uzziah, Azariah, himself, with his own father Amaziah, see Second Kings 14, verse 22. Another part of the explanation of the divergence, no doubt, is the practice of reckoning the king's reigns in round numbers of years, including those in which the reign began and ended. The effect of this would be that with every change on the throne, the year of change would be reckoned twice. 
These two causes explain nearly the whole discrepancy, but one must reckon also with occasional possible corruptions of numbers, which in some cases, as in the twenty years of Pekah, are shown by the Assyrian inscriptions to have taken place. A striking example of how discovery throws light on dark places of scripture and furnishes corroboration of disputed statements is seen in the case of Sargon, the conqueror of Samaria. In Isaiah 20, verse 1, we read that Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent his tartan unto Ashdod, who fought against Ashdod and took it. But Sargon was a king totally unknown to history. No ancient writer mentions him. Tartan was equally a strange term. Sargon, accordingly, was voted by many a myth. Various expedients were resorted to by others to solve the difficulty. Identification with Shalmaneser IV, etc., by a curious coincidence, the very first discovery made in Assyrian exploration by Bota in 1843 was that of the ruins of the great palace of this very Sargon. Hilprecht, the distinguished explorer, has said, quote, There never has been roused again such a deep and general interest in the excavation of distant oriental sites as towards the middle of the last century, when Sargon's palace rose suddenly out of the ground and furnished the first faithful picture of a great epoch of art which has vanished completely from human sight." Unquote. Sargon is now one of the best known of the later Assyrian kings. His name, portrait, sculptures, annals, including this siege of Ashdod, were found in his palace. He was the father of Sennacherib and the final conqueror of Samaria, completing the work Shalmaneser had begun and carrying the people captive into Assyria. Tartan is the official name for the Assyrian commander-in-chief of the army. Another instance of the confirmations of the Bible furnished by the monuments may be taken from the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's lot was a hard one after the taking of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans in fulfillment of his own constantly repeated predictions he voluntarily cast in his lot with the remnant of the people in the land, but a few months later Gedaliah, the governor, was foully murdered, and fear of the Chaldeans led even those who had avenged the murder and rescued, quote, the kings, Zedadiah's daughters, unquote, Jeremiah 41 and 42, to contemplate flight into Egypt. Jeremiah, in God's name, urged them to remain, and told them that their flight would end in their destruction. Angry at the prophet, 
Johanan and the rest not only went down to Egypt, but compelled Jeremiah to go with them. They settled in a frontier place called Tapanese, where Jeremiah gave further prophecies, chapters 43, etc. As a special sign, he was ordered to take great stones and hide them in mortar in the brick pavement at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace at Tapanese, then to declare that Egypt would be invaded by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who would set up his throne on these stones he had laid. Chapter 43 The prophecy is repeated in chapter 44, verse 30, and again in fuller form in chapter 46, verse 13 and following. See Ezekiel 29. This place, Toponese, has commonly been identified with the later Daphne, and its site was discovered in a mound called Tel de Fune. Here Flinders Petri conducted successful excavations, laying bare the palace and the square of brick pavement which stood in its entrance. Critics, nevertheless, have always persistently affirmed the failure of Jeremiah's prophecies of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Egypt. Yet at Syena itself, which Ezekiel notes as the bound of the invasion, chapter 29, verse 10, the statue of a royal official has been discovered, in which this personage takes credit for having repaired the temple after it had been laid waste by the Babylonians, whose ravages, he declares, he had checked at Nubia. The following may be cited from Dr. Pinches. Quote, Just as successful were Nebuchadnezzar's operations against Egypt. According to an Egyptian inscription, the Babylonian king attacked Egypt in the year 577 B.C., penetrating as far as Syene and the borders of Ethiopia. Hophra, who still reigned, was deposed, the general Amasis being raised to the throne in his place to rule the land as a vassal of the Babylonian king. According to the only historical fragment of the reign of this king known, Nebuchadnezzar made an expedition to Egypt in his thirty-seventh year. This was, to all appearance, against his vassal Amasis, who, like Zedekiah, had revolted against the powers that raised him to the throne. The rebellion was suppressed, but the ultimate fate of Amasis is not known. Unquote. Does this look to an unprejudiced eye like non-fulfillment? Part 6 In connection with the discoveries at Tapanes, Professor Petri points out how readily Greek names of instruments and other words might have found their way into Hebrew and into Babylon. This bears directly on the last subject I shall allude to, the light thrown by archaeology on the book of Daniel. This book 
has been the subject of severe attack, and there are undeniably difficulties connected with it which are not yet satisfactorily cleared up. The fact that it is written partly in Hebrew, partly in Aramaic, has suggested that it may have existed in two versions, and may latterly have undergone revision, and perhaps expansion. The one thing certain is that the attacks on its historical trustworthiness have been carried to quite unwarrantable extremes. I take up a popular work, Professor Macfadian's Introduction to the Old Testament, and find the author reveling in demonstrations of the book's inaccuracy, pages 320 and following. The objections are old as the hills, but they are confidently retailed, as if nothing of the nature of an answer to them had ever been heard of. For example, quote, There was no siege and capture of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., as is implied in 1.1. Compare Jeremiah 25.1, verses 9-11. to 11. Nor indeed could there have been any till after the decisive battle of Carchemish, unquote, etc. But Jehoiakim's fourth year in the Jewish reckoning, Jeremiah 25.1, was his third year in the Babylonian way of reckoning, Daniel 1.1. And this was the year of the battle of Carchemish, Jeremiah 46, verse 2, probably 605 B.C. The expedition is that referred to in Second Kings 24, 1. Compare Second Chronicles 36, verse 6 and 7, when hostages were no doubt taken. Quote, Again, Belshazzar is regarded as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, though he was in reality the son of Nabuniad. Unquote. So Jesus was the son of David, quote unquote, though not his immediate descendant. Not much is known of Nabonidus, but there is nothing improbable in the supposition that, like his predecessor, Neriglasar, he sought to strengthen his hold upon the throne by marrying a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Quote, Nor is there any room in this period of the history, 538 B.C., for Darius the Mede, unquote. On the contrary, there is much plausibility in the suggestion that Cyrus gave his general, Gabrius, for a time, a delegated authority in Babylon. As much almost is implied in Cyrus's own words in his inscription, quote, Peace to the city did Cyrus establish, peace to all the province of Babylon did Gabrius, his governor, proclaim. Governors in Babylon he appointed, unquote. Such objections have their sole ground in our ignorance, 
but it is strange that the critic does not tell of the rebuke administered to such reasoning from ignorance by the discovery of the facts about Belshazzar himself. His name, too, was utterly unknown, and defenders of Daniel were fain to identify him with Nabonidus. He was another plain proof of the unhistoricity of the book. Yet inscriptions containing his name have multiplied till we have now a tolerably clear idea of his position and part in the final struggle. It is not improbable that he is identical with the Marduk Sar Uzer, in the third year of whose reign about this time a contract tablet is dated. Marduk equals Bel. The accounts of the taking of Babylon in the inscription would seem to imply that while Nabonidus commanded the forces in the field, Belshazzar held the city within. When its outer parts were taken after the defeat and capture of Nabonidus, he retreated to the citadel and held it against Cyrus for several months. At length it was overpowered, and Belshazzar was slain. The linguistic objection is not more potent. We are told of Quote, no less than five Greek words, unquote, which occur in two verses, chapters 3, verse 4 and 5. Strange that not a trace of Greek words should occur anywhere else, and compel us, quote, to put the book at the earliest with the Greek period, that is, after 331 B.C., unquote. But why? Because one... Santirin, by its change of one, Saltirian, into N, quote, betrays the influence of the Macedonian dialect, unquote. A quite groundless assertion. Quote, and another, Symphonia, is first found in Plato, unquote. Seeing, however, that neither Plato nor any other Greek classical writer ever uses this word in the sense of a musical instrument. The point of the argument is not very obvious. Homel claims for the word a Chaldean origin. I do not dwell on the interpretations given by these writers of the prophecies in Daniel, though I own that they appear to me forced and unnatural in the extreme. What, for example, are we to think of the proposal to date? Quote, the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, unquote. Daniel 9, 25. In the prophecy of the seventy weeks, from 586 B.C., the date of the exile. Macphagian. Or, to make the first seven weeks equal to forty-nine years, run out with the edict of Cyrus, 537 B.C., or to identify the last week of the seventy with 171 to 164, immediately preceding the death of Antiochus. While it is admitted that the intervening period of sixty-two weeks, 
equal to 434 years, cannot be got in between 537 and 171, equal to 366 years. Yet Mr. McFadden is of opinion that, quote, with the first and last of the above periods, there is no difficulty, unquote. And the middle period is got over by the remark that probably, quote, during much of this long period, the Jews had no fixed method of computing time, unquote. Traditional apologetics has little to compare with shifts like these. I have adduced enough, I think, to show that the Bible has nothing to fear but everything to hope for from the light that archaeology can cast upon it. End of section 12